Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. We'd also like to thank Qualcomm for making today's show possible. First, they connected the phone to the internet. Now they're connecting the internet to everything else. Qualcomm, their inventors bringing the future forward faster. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as Silicon Valley's top foreign diplomat, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Mike Cannon-Brooks, the co-CEO of Atlassian. He co-founded the company with Scott Farquhar in 2002. Atlassian is an enterprise software company best known for its team collaboration tools and is headquartered right here in Sydney, where we are recording this podcast. Mike, I traveled all the way here to see you, so it better be good. You ready? <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, welcome to the show. So let's talk a little bit about Atlassian. You, you're one of the more successful IPOs lately, and we'll talk about that later, where tech is right now. But why don't you explain what Atlassian does and some of its more popular products? Sure, Cara. Um, we make, uh, I mean, broadly said, team collaboration tools uh, for teams of people to be more effective in organizations all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started in the uh, software team, building project management and collaboration tools for software developers. Mm-hmm. And then over the last decade, we've expanded into IT teams, sort of an adjacency. Um, and then in the last sort of four or five years into broader business teams, so finance, marketing, HR, legal, et cetera. So talk about that idea, because right now enterprise is very hot in that way and kind of hip even. What has happened? Because usually enterprise software has not been the most exciting place in the world to work. How did you get started in it? And, and you know, there's obviously Slack gets a lot of the attention in Silicon Valley, but there's a lot of other companies in the genre that is are changing the way enterprise is done. Sure. I mean, I think there's a few things changing at the moment. I mean, both mobile, the internet, and the sort of rise of people making IT choices at different levels of the organization is really changing how enterprise software is is bought and sold. Mm-hmm. Atlassian's for more than a decade kind of pioneered a new model. We, we tend to like to say our software is bought and not sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sell on a team by team basis. We don't try to sell to an entire company at a single time, which has been one of our uh, successes, if you like. So, so why did that change? What happened in enterprise software to allow companies like you and Slack and others, you know, to have inroads into this area that was sort of protected by CIOs? Sure. I think part of it is um, people's general awareness throughout the business that software or technology is a competitive advantage. So you have marketing teams making you know, small but significant purchasing choices about how their team is going to operate. Um, part of that is also the rise of, of SaaS or software as a service. Mm-hmm. So before you used to go to IT, sort of the, the gatekeepers to get them to install a piece of software for you or set up a server or something. And now you can generally go on a whole lot of enterprise software company websites, you know, effectively sign up for a trial or swipe a credit card, get your colleagues online. And then, you know, if it works, IT sort of says, well, it's working for you. So, you know, we'll keep supporting it or paying for it. All right, what happened? Was it that consu- people were used to consumer tools or mobile tools? or we- Talk a little bit about, deeper about that. Uh, I think it's a combination of all of those things. Certainly millennials, as people like to say, coming through, being used to higher quality tools and getting to the workplace and then saying, wait, I have to use this stuff to, mm-hmm. to sort of collaborate. If I can use, you know, Facebook Messenger at, at home, why do I have this, this crummy messaging tool at work? So that's certainly been one angle that I think has changed things. Second is obviously software as a service and the internet generally, you know, our ability. So we sell into 170 different countries now. 
So we could never have done that in a traditional enterprise model. Sure. We would have need salespeople all over the world, et cetera. So we can spread out the revenue generation, if you like, much more around the globe, much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, our cost of producing that service or creating that software has gone down rapidly with open source and with you know, cloud uh, computing in terms of AWS, things like that. So we can effectively deliver a better product for cheaper and kind of instantly get it around the world and just let it uh, so bubble up. So talk about the founding of this. is 2002 you started. What were you doing? 2002. We were both sort of finishing university. I had a prior startup that was a uh, an interesting journey. So we, we went what through that. It? What was it? Um, it was uh, an online bookmarking startup. Okay, there were a lot uh, of those. So yeah. It was a lot of those. Yeah, we sold it to a company called Blink.com in New York. Uh -huh. um, oh, wow, uh, so we, so you know, we, we, we had a little exit. It was a one-year journey. We learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I went and uh, actually was a bit of a journalist for a while, wrote uh, about tech and various other things. And then, yeah, we started Atlassian in 2002. Scott was just finishing university. And famously, we didn't have one of those ambitious starting stories. Right. A lot of you our need one, just well, so you know. You can buy them in Silicon uh, Valley. 15 years, I should come up with one. Uh, a lot of our colleagues went to <laughs> there work There was this for, Pez dispenser and... That's right. We right. were selling Pez dispensers to enterprises. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a lot of our colleagues went to work for big consulting companies, IBM mm -hmm. and PwC, and our only goal was to actually pay ourselves as much as they were getting paid, which is $48,000 a year. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was the goal of starting. Right. So you, but why did you not do that? Why did you want to do this? Um, we didn't want to get a real job. Why didn't want to get a real job? Because you were um, in more consumer space. We were a little bit in a more consumer space. Um, we certainly thought that enterprises would probably purchase software more. Um, we had had a fair bit of work experience at university, a series of six month placements, and it was just a horrible, horrible experience of the software we were made to use. Um, so I guess we, we wanted to change that and thought there was an opportunity, we had a hunch that maybe that would change. Mm -hmm. And what's the name from? Atlas was a, a Greek titan, so I'm I did a lot of, of classics. Yeah. Um, so he theoretically held the sky up, and we started as a, a company with a high commitment to legendary service was one of our taglines in the early days. And mm -hmm. so we thought that was kind of the original service to the world. Uh, we turned it into an adjective, sort of an Atlassian effort. How much um, funding did you get originally? Was Because this was not an area people were funding. Everything was consumer. Oh, uh, we didn't was, get any. So, didn't get any. So we actually haven't raised any institutional funding Right, that's right. Yeah. So um, what, why was that? By choice or because you just couldn't get any? Um, well, I mean, as I like to say, in 2002, A, it was nuclear winter for tech. Right. B, we were two knuckleheads with no experience. Mm -hmm. And C, we we're in Australia. So we didn't even bother, to be honest, to try <laughs> which, to get – we didn't even bother to try to get funding right, in the early right. days, um, which is part of where our model came from, actually, the – disruptive model that we have, we, we had to be profitable. Um, it's what you see in a lot of the great Australian tech companies is mm -hmm. we didn't really have a choice. Right. So it was either kind of become profitable and grow or die. Right. Um, and so the ones that made it through that gauntlet uh, have been very, very successful. Did you did you think about that you needed it? Did you think about coming to Silicon Valley to get money or not? We didn't. We didn't. didn't. No, in 2002, I mean, Silicon Valley seemed a, a mile away from us uh, in Sydney as well. So it right. wasn't even a thought. Right. Um, and by the time you know, VC certainly started to come knocking probably 2005, 2006. We just always asked them the question, why would we take money? You know, we're growing, we're profitable. What what would change here? And they'd have a whole host of reasons and we wouldn't believe them and then we'd move on. Right, so. right. How did you develop that skin to do that? Because most startups do that. And so you think that's a mistake or do you? Uh, like I, it? I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to have it as the default choice. Right. It's a mistake to not think about why you're doing it and what change it's going to make to your business. Um, there's a sort of a if we can get money, we should go get it mm -hmm. attitude sometimes. And we didn't need it. We were profitable. You know, we raised a secondary round from Excel in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, about a $60 million round, uh, which was our sort of Series A, if you like. Um, but we had $55 million in the bank when we raised that money. Wow. So, so why bother? 
Uh, well, we needed to get them on board as a partner at that stage. So that because was a very strategic choice. What we was actually, the thinking there? Um, well, you know, we were seven, eight years in. We had been heads down for all that time and then decided, we well, sort of looked up and thought, we, we've really built something special here. There's a lot of runway to go ahead of us and we need some help. We'd reached some pretty rarefied air at that point too. Um, we're certainly thinking about going public and looking ahead and thought we'd probably need some partners to do that. Um, we were trying to build out a board and it was strangely very hard to build out a board without people would look at us and say, oh, well, how come you have no funding? I'm not sure about this company. So right. there was a few things. We Optics. had a very interesting negotiation with the Excel guys, who we love, I would say. Why um, is that? Well, we were trying to – they originally wanted to put in quite a bit more money and we wanted them to put in less. So we would have taken $5 million. Right, because um, you wanted to give them less. <laughs> we wanted to give them less, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it was a, we're just, it was a just very strange to negotiation in reverse. You're, you're yes. um, we don't want your money. Yes, you do. Yes. Yeah. And they our, must have gone crazy. Our whole funding process was quite um, – unusual because we had a bunch of VCs that have been chasing for many years. So it's not a typical process. And I tell all Australian startups, don't try and copy it. It was just a, a thing for the time so that we had. talk about the mentality bond. of having to make money because it is an anathema in Silicon Valley, though now it's starting to be very important. There's like either you sell right now, look at Jet.com or some others. People are selling. LinkedIn had to sell really in a lot of ways. Talk about that discipline that it brings when you as you're moving towards your IPO. Um, I think it's been really important for us. I mean, our DNA as a company has always been to be profitable, to to be customer funded, to make money by selling things. Um, so I think we've gotten away from maybe some of the bad habits you develop if you can always go and get more money, right? You can sort of say, well, we're going to get profitable. No, 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 let's go raise some more money and invest more heavily and then get profitable. You know, you can right. always kind of push out that bow wave and from – you know, year two, we were, we were making more money. We didn't start with any, so we had to kind of get there to hire people. So I think just the DNA of the company has always been about driving customer value, um, selling software with a disruptive model, and at the same time being quite lean about how we do it, you know, in terms of managing costs and um, all that sort of thing, right? People think it's funny that we fly economy or use UberX to get around and things mm -hmm. like that. And it's just, it's part of the DNA of what we've done. So. Sure. All right, talk about your products before you went public. You had three products, is that correct? Or three major products? Uh, we have, yeah, three or four major products. We have about 10 or Talk about each of them overall. really briefly. And then when we get back from the break, we'll talk a little bit about being an Australian company and going public and what sure. that was like. So the Jira family of products is our biggest. So Jira, uh, which is now Jira Software, um, is our largest product. It's a project management and workflow tool right. for software developers. Mm -hmm. That has now spun off two other Of which uh, there are many in Silicon Valley. Of which There's there are many, many, many yeah. in the world, millions yeah. and millions, which is yeah. a, good, it's a good market to be in. Yeah. Um, it's now spun off two other products, so Jira Service Desk and Jira Core. Uh, mm -hmm. Service Desk largely for IT teams uh, running help desks, uh, but increasingly for any service-based team in an organization, be mm -hmm. it interactive marketing or legal or finance. Sure. Um, uh, Jira Core is uh, strictly for business projects and running project management and workflow in mm -hmm. an organization in a much more collaborative team-based sense. Were you worried when a lot of other people jumped? I'm trying to think with Sana. There's so many. There's so many of them. As if it was their idea to begin with. I mean, sure. Uh, we've, <laughs> being you know, we've been around a long time. We've seen yeah. competitors come and go and um, some stick with us. We're in a huge market. You know, there's a billion knowledge workers out there trying to do their jobs better. So we still think we're very, very early in that market, I suppose. And, um, and then you're, you're, the one that's best known is HipChat, correct? Uh, HipChat? Well, Jira's probably better known than HipChat. Yeah, yeah, I got that. Uh, from a consumer uh, uh, HipChat is an enterprise team-based um, messaging and uh, communication which tool. Uh, which we bought, um, yeah, it was three people when we bought it three, four years ago now, uh, which is obviously a hugely hot space and uh, it's growing very strongly. It's right. a great product for us. 
and Confluence, which is our sort of textual collaboration, uh, if you want to think about a content uh, collaboration and discussion tool. So HipChat and uh, Confluence are kind of siblings. One, obviously, for the much more real-time messaging, video calls, mm-hmm. communication aspect. And one Call for it the Slack. More, like it's like uh, Slack. One of the more uh, long-form, uh, you know, Confluence more for the long-form content discussion and images and files and those sorts of things. Was it really important to have that many products? There's a lot of Silicon Valley companies are single products like Slack is that and has not added to it, it assuming it will, but it does. It has one product essentially. Was it important to have those three kind of legs to stand on to go uh, public? It's uh, not not so much to go public. It's certainly been important for our business for a number of reasons. In the early days, you know, we used to say we wanted the portfolio theory on our side, not on the VC side. So, <laughs> you know, having multiple products, uh, it was a very controversial decision internally to start our second product, which was Confluence. Looking back, it's proven very probably sage. You know, we had two rocket engines driving us along, not just one, and they, they helped each other out. So from that point of view, it's given us a lot more diversity of income, diversity of everything else as a company. But... I think it's also something that the customers really value, right? If you think about, you know, knowledge workers, they, they have to do what? They have to kind of, you know, complete a, a bunch lot of, of tasks. They have to write a bunch of content and they have to communicate with their colleagues in some way, shape or form, whether right. that's, you know, Word and email and Outlook and, and, and PowerPoint or whatever, like whatever traditional tool set you have or a modern tool set, you know, we kind of have one of each of the three fundamental pillars at the moment that right, we're building. Right, sort of the Salesforce model, adding on things as you go. But yeah, we'll be trying to be very thoughtful about how we do it. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about going public and what it's like to be a public company in Australia and pretty much the most famous one, I think, correct? Probably the, that's listed in the U.S. maybe. Yeah, yeah well, that's all that matters, as you know. It only, oh, sorry, everything centers around the U.S. of A., which it doesn't. Today's show was brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. You can listen to all of that wherever you are, thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own the books. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month, plus 30% discount on regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. While others have been talking about 5G, Qualcomm has been creating it. Just as they pioneered many 3G and 4G technologies, they're now developing the technologies that will connect everything and leading the world to 5G. For years, they've been pushing the boundaries of LTE, collaborating with industry leaders and spearheading the research efforts needed to make 5G a reality. Their innovations are critical to developing a wireless network designed to meet our world's ever-increasing data demands. 5G will provide a layer of connectivity fabric that is fundamental to everyday life. It will impact our jobs, our cities, our homes, and ourselves. Plus, you can download as many movies as you want now. So I've got a question for all of you. When you imagine a truly connected world, what comes to mind? Tell us your idea on Twitter, adding hashtag why wait, and we'll pick one lucky winner to have lunch with me and Lauren Good from Too Embarrassed to Ask. Tweet your idea, add the hashtag why wait, and then you get to break bread with Lauren and me if that's something you actually want to do. We're here with Mike Cannon Brooks, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian, one of Australia's... I think probably most prominent tech companies, correct? It's really, it's interesting. There aren't as many as you would think here. Why? What, talk about that journey for an IPO. And you IPO'd in the US, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk about that, what happened there. So you were chugging along, making money. We were chugging along, making money. And um, look, we've always wanted to be an excellent company and, and play on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the analogy that, you know, I grew up playing basketball and, you know, shoot around as a kid 
dreaming of playing for high school, you mm-hmm. dream of playing for the NBA. And right. so we kind of at each point had been, you know, looking at, well, what is the big league for this company and how do we get to the next stage? You know, we went through high school, we went through college, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so when we had a chance to play in the NBA or, or go public in the US, as I like to think in tech company circles, that was certainly a goal. We were very thoughtful. We took a long time to do it, I think. Um, mm-hmm. We took about four years of planning um, and operating a couple of years internally as if we were a public company to really get used to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't want to uh, in any way screw up the magic of what we've built. So um, how many employees do you have now? Uh, so we have about somewhere north of 1,700. 1,700 around the world, correct? Around the Most world, of them are correct. in Australia? Um, a little over half, I think. Half. Call it 1,000. So talk about that idea of coming from Australia. Was that hard to do? There's, You really are the one. Was that, is there a lot of pressure on you to prove things? I, I, I think that in terms of regional things in in the U.S. too. I mean, MySpace was Los Angeles and then it wasn't. Devan Media was Los Angeles and then it wasn't. Now it's Snapchat. But most of the companies are based in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. the Facebooks, mm-hmm. the Googles, the Apples. And all the rest. Oh, the Airbnb. Microsofts, the, the Amazons. Microsoft. There's a yeah, bunch of other places two, that are doing pretty Seattle, well. Yeah. But still oddly geographically centered, you know, in an analog way that sometimes confuses me about why that's the case. Sure. I mean, we've we've taken, a, again, a pragmatic attitude to it. So we have um, two large and very valuable offices, three now actually in the U.S. So we mm-hmm. have an office in San Francisco, a couple hundred people, another couple hundred people in Austin, and um, about 100 people now in Mountain View. Mm-hmm. Um, so we certainly see the value in the U.S. talent pool um, and in being there. We like to think that we straddle the Pacific uh, as a company. We get the best of Silicon Valley in terms of the just amazing creativity, drive. You know, n- nothing is too big to attempt in this right. kind of uh, world that, that's over there. Um, and just the depth of talent is incredible. And, you know, we like to combine that with some of the more pragmatic, real world problems maybe that exist mm-hmm. in other places in the right. world in other big right. cities. Sydney's right. a big five and a half million person city. So mm-hmm. we get a lot of that practicality without maybe some of the froth and bubbles at the same time. And we right. try to, you know, balance Is there pressure to move to Silicon Valley or did you ever think about it or never? Uh, we've never thought about moving the entire company at all. No. I mean, you had we, just have offices there. Yeah, we've had an office there for 10 years now in San mm-hmm. Francisco, three years in Austin maybe. So, you know, we, we have hundreds of people there. And, you know, I'm there once a month, basically. So we certainly spend a lot of time there. But at the same time, we see the huge value in Australia. We think it's a huge strategic advantage for us in terms of getting Talk about that talent. because I, I don't believe you. I mean, it's interesting to me that there still hasn't been as many. China would be the, the mm-hmm. country that's really minting some very big and significant companies. But it's still, it's sort of like Hollywood. It still dominates. Do, do, is that going to change or do, does it have to change? Or? I don't think it has to change. No, I'm a big believer that, that you don't try to change that. It's the same as Australia has a very successful film industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of that industry is about building pathways to Hollywood back and forth. We've obviously got a lot of Hollywood, big Hollywood stars, mm-hmm. global stars now uh, that started in the Australian film industry. We make some pretty good quality films down here as well. We make some right. big budget films too. And then, you know, so we, we want to build connections. I think what the Australian tech industry needs to do is exactly what you know, the Israeli or a lot of other small geographic countries have tried to do, which is build as many pathways mm-hmm. to and from Silicon Valley. We're not going to beat them. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to build a way to cooperate with them and get the best of both worlds. Does it have to stay geographic like that? Is that cha- Could that change over the course of... It seems to stick. It's really an odd thing. Uh, it's just about talent magnetism, right? right? Uh, uh, Silicon sure. Valley attracts the best talent in the world that's interested in that space. It's the same thing as if you're in film from anywhere in the world, you probably end up gravitating towards Hollywood and right. that's a self-perpetuating uh, uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of other reasons and I do think 
a lot of that knowledge is being spread around the world as well. So what's the benefit to being here? What is from your perspective? Uh, uh, I think we, we have just a different, had um, we get a different perspective. Mel from Canva talk about loyalty, the ability to really hire and keep people, the, the, the relentless talent hopping that goes on in Silicon Valley and things like that. Sure. I think we have great loyalty in the San Francisco office, actually, yeah. uh, probably well above the normal American tech company. But yeah, it's certainly an issue. It's certainly an issue that, that we have much more um, you know, churn of that kind in, in San Francisco than we do in, in Sydney. I actually think we have great technical talent in Sydney. I'm a, a computer science professor at one of the big local universities, mm-hmm. uh, probably the best technical university in the country, University of New South Wales. And if you look at where our grads go, you know, our top 10 grads last year went to Uber, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, in other places in the world. They, they, they right. left the country, right? right? We don't have great jobs for them. So, you know, at last year, obviously, we're trying to heavily recruit from local universities. The quality of talent coming out is very, very good. And, you know, we're a big fish in a small pond. So I do think it's a big strategic advantage for us. So what's your responsibility as a big fish in a small pond? Do you feel, you know, you have to make it all work perfectly or, or how do you create other big fishes here? I don't think we think about I'm only thinking it because Google sort of shed off people that then started companies. Everyone worked at Google or everyone worked at Facebook or everyone worked at, mm-hmm. and then they go on to do other things. Yeah, I mean, Pinterest, we, we, we certainly celebrate yeah. alumni. We have a number right. of uh, alumni. We have our first unicorn alumni mm-hmm. in MuleSoft now. Okay. Um, so people move in the tech industry and they go and start their own companies and mm-hmm. we, you know, we like to celebrate that as much as we can. Actually, one of the Canva founders did some work for Atlassian way back when. He designed mm-hmm. one of our early websites. So, look, we, you just got to celebrate that. You can't fight that. You, you celebrate people going to do that. I don't see it as a responsibility of ours to do right. that as much as our responsibilities to the customers who just keep what making about great the, products. Given you didn't take VC money, but the VC market is always in, you know, I don't want to say gasoline because sometimes they do set things mm-hmm. on fire. But, um, they, you know, I think there's an iron triangle of VCs, university, and companies mm-hmm. as they shed people and everything else. How do you do? You think you need that here? A stronger? We are certainly doing our bit to start that. So yeah. actually, I was so heavily instrumental in starting uh, Blackbird Ventures, right? Which I, which Mel brought up. As so, as a heavy investor in Blackbird, uh-huh. I'm uh, by proxy a heavy investor in Canva. So what look, do you, Blackbird's doing what do you fantastically. Hope to do? What do you hope to do with that? Uh, I think there's a big opportunity in Australia. I think what a lot of the US VCs have seen is that it's very hard to come down here for sort of, you know, the line is supposedly sub $10 million investment. It becomes complicated for them to manage. When you're doing your big rounds like 99designs or Atlassian, Oz4x, big commerce, et cetera, Mm -hmm. the $35, $40 million round, they can manage that remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, The smaller rounds get hard. So we thought there was a huge opportunity. And we've got a great angel scene and a great um, seed funding accelerator scene. Mm -hmm. What Blackbird was trying to target is that gap in between. You know, they've they've raised a couple of hundred grand or a million dollars, but they really need that next four, five, six million dollar round to get them to to global proportions. Mm -hmm. We only target globally focused businesses. Um, largely coming from Australia, Australian universities. And, um, you know, we now have the largest fund in the country. We just closed Fund 2, which is over $200 million. Wow. So it's a large um, one. we're readily deploying it at the moment. Yeah, there's a huge amount of opportunity. Only in there. Australia. I mean, we, we look at all sorts of businesses worldwide. Some of our businesses have moved out of Australia. We're not mm-hmm. trying to keep them here or pen them in. Uh, but generally, yes, our focus has been on Australian started and funded businesses. Well, Mark Andreessen for years didn't want to go anywhere he couldn't have lunch with. I mean, it was he just wanted to stay within... The boundaries. I think he still actually does that in a lot of ways compared to other. Sure. And there's lots of different ways to 
to, I guess, invest. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things I've loved about the Excel guys the most is they, they're very happy to jump on a plane and see opportunities all around the world. You know, they did mm-hmm. Rovio over in Finland. They did Qualtrics in Utah, Lightspeed up in Canada, mm-hmm. us down in Sydney. So mm-hmm. well, you're uh, a little bit of a longer, great... a longer flight having just done <laughs> it. Um, so we'll talk about this where things are going in the enterprise market in the next section. But what's it like being a public company? Is it, has it been a big change for you? Um, it's certainly meant, uh, you know, on the on the PR marketing side, things have certainly stepped up a lot, uh, which is, you know, is great for business generally. It can't mm-hmm. hurt for people to know our, our name and our brand and, and discover our products. Um, it uh, has been a really good journey for us, I think, in terms of the constant discipline that being a public company uh, entails. What's been hard for you? What's been difficult? Um, to be honest, we've we had a lot of practice and we spent a lot of time Not getting ready. Not saying things, yeah. So, um, Nothing has been stupendously much harder than we've been used to the last few years. We were really hard on ourselves for the couple of years before we went public to make sure that we could right. we could compete and we could do what we we're saying. A lot of Silicon Valley companies, Uber, Airbnb, don't want to go public that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously took a long time to do it, mm-hmm. but they're very reticent. They, I think they'd like to stay private if they could and get endless sums of money if, sure. if they could. Although they can. They probably can, given sure. how much money they've I guess it depends on your model as well. We obviously have a very predictable business model sure. being, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of smaller transactions to enterprises, which gives us less of a, a quarterly worry, I suppose, than, than traditional enterprise software businesses that can, you know, sometimes get a third or two thirds of their revenue in the last two or three weeks sure. of the quarter. How do you split up the CEO, co-CEO? That's always, it's always a red flag to me. I'm sorry, sometimes it is. But how do you split that up? Look, we've got 14 years of practice now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have run different parts of the business at different times. We've both run the entire company at different times in the company's history. Mm-hmm. And for the last probably four or five years, we've um, basically, we've divided the exec team. Uh, we spend a lot of time with each other's um, halves of the business. Generally, Scott's a little more back-end focused um, and runs some of the operational things and runs two of our product groups. Um, and I run the other two product groups and, um, you know, sales and marketing What's and design. What's the key to a things. happy marriage, a co-CEO marriage? I think uh, trust, obviously. Honesty, uh, being able to call bullshit on the other person when well, – can I say that? Sorry. Yes, please um, do. Be, you can say fuck Being too. able to say – You can say whatever you, know, you want on a podcast. You did the wrong thing, those sorts of things. Um, being respectful of boundaries is something that we've learned a lot over the last decade is really, really important. As we get, grow, we can create work very easily. You know, if I talk to one of Scott's uh, reports, I can I can spin off work without meaning to. So we're very mindful of each other's boundaries and uh, constant communication. That sounds good. Yeah. When we get back, we'll be talking more with Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's the co-CEO of Atlassian, Australia's star company, I think we'll call it, because uh, it is. Um, it recently went public, and it has a lot of products in the enterprise space, which is a hot area. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wonder Capital. You probably know someone who has installed solar panels in their home. Small and medium-sized businesses want to go solar too, but financing for commercial solar isn't easy to get. Wonder Capital is helping solve that problem. It allows individuals to invest in their solar funds, which go directly to helping these small and medium-sized U.S. businesses go solar. And since the beginning of the year, Wonder has originated over $25 million worth of solar projects. When businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly cash flows in the form of interest payments. Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Two funds are available. The Wonder Income Fund returns 6% per year during a 10-year period, and the Wonder Bridge Fund returns 11% per year during a two-year period. These funds are asset-backed, the assets being the solar panel. Learn how you can begin earning up to 11% returns at wondercapital.com recode. That's W-U-N-D-E-R capital.com recode. We're here with Mike Cannon-Brooks, one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Atlassian, an enterprise 
software company, which has been an enormous success in Australia. It went public in the U.S. How many years ago was that? Just recently. Uh, December of yeah. last year. So you've been the big success. Everyone is like dying in the U.S. because of no exits. But you had a finally a great one. Sure. Uh, we, we built a business that didn't need to time the markets. And we right. did it, I think, was when it was right for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit about that and where the enterprise space is, because there's been some troublesome signs in the enterprise space for some of the companies. Uh, they, Box, which went public, has had a rougher road, probably because they don't make money. Or sure. Had- it's a, um, look, they have a very different business model. Yeah, I don't want to lump you all on together, so, but there is an enterprise space that has gotten hit in a lot of ways. Um, how do you manage that, and what's that like right now? The, well, the I mean, I think, I think a lot of them have been hit because of, again, their fundamental business model. So mm-hmm. if you look at a lot of those companies, they spend – a massive amount of money on sales and marketing, mm-hmm. um, sometimes more than 100%, 60 70 80% of uh, revenue right, on customers. sales and marketing to get customers with the belief in a long-term payoff. Yeah. That you run have, fast enough, you'll... Well, it may have worked in the older days where you were selling someone a large piece of software for millions of dollars that was going to stick around for years. But nowadays, you know, you're selling smaller pieces of software. It becomes harder to do that in the sort of current climate. And things pop up very quickly too. Things change a lot quicker nowadays. So our model is in reverse of that. So we spend sort of 20% of uh, revenue on sales and marketing. We spend about 35 to 40% of revenue on product on R&D. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've flipped that backwards. Uh, we've had it flip backwards for more than a decade. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're really differentiating is our, our model is, is truly disruptive to enterprise software. It, it can be quite scary if you're one of those companies to have a look at the, the economics. It's, it's part of the reason that we're public and it's part of the reason that we, we continue to stick to what so we do So talk well. about the enterprise space. They're still dominated by the oracles, the all kinds of companies. There's mm-hmm. tons of them. What is happening now from your perspective? How is that? They sort of still have an iron grip on a lot of companies. How does that change? Is it a slow thing or is it – obviously, there's been a ton of change, but where does it go next? I think it's, look, it's continually changing. I do think the democratization of buying in the enterprise is quite an interesting phenomenon. It's changing the role of IT from a gatekeeper to more of a a coach, if you like, in terms of how to buy software, which is changing. It helps uh, SaaS companies like us to get in the door a lot more easily than we could have done in the past. We don't need a sales force. People will try things. Play golf with the CIO and those yeah. sorts of things. You don't do that. You don't look like anymore. a golf player. Not a, not you a look like player. a trucker. I got, I'm going to put your picture out. You look like a southern trucker right um, now. I feel I should be playing Alabama or something. <laughs> Sweet home Alabama. But go ahead. So, uh, look, I think that that whole part of the space is really changing. Mm-hmm. I think businesses are always looking for ways to do things better, right? To, to collaborate better, to, to communicate with software. I think APIs is also perhaps one of the, the secret ingredients yeah. here. It used to be an enterprise software. The integration was a very expensive sure. thing. You buy two huge packages and you've got to get and a bunch of consultants to, to put them together. And then you have to have people helping you. When you move to SaaS, people forget you get a, a fixed or relatively standard set of APIs at usually a, a single URL. So it's easier for people to build integrations that are reusable across customers. Which yeah. just I think they brings, made it harder on purpose is my guess. I'm just they may well have spitballing that um, one. To, you know, that just brings the time for implementation, for getting things running, you know, down. One of our focuses as a company, obviously, is is um, on teams. Mm-hmm. So we try to sell one team at a time, uh, prove value with a small team of people, and then virally get to a second team or a third team within the enterprise. So if you look far more of our, our dollars come after the first sale than in the first sale. With traditional enterprise software, you kind of, you know, you sell $100 on day one and then maybe $10 in, in year two sort of a maintenance fee, we, we flip that right around. So we tend to get more So where is the future one. of work going? I mean, that's a big, obvious question. Of, you know, workplaces are different, commuting is di- There's all kinds of physical things, and then there's all kinds of sort of more non-physical ways it's changed. How do you see it? Where does it go? I think 
I mean, the, the, the nature of work, the nature of businesses is, is changing on a constant basis. Obviously, one of the biggest changes I think now is the notion of distribution and remoteness. Mm-hmm. It used to be you thought about, you know, the New York office working with maybe the India office. Mm-hmm. Now it's your team maybe in all sorts of different locations. So certainly communication tools, video conferencing tools are becoming way more important to getting work done productively. At the same time, you need tools to manage distributed teams work. That's largely what Atlassian does in terms of You've got to write a document and get a bunch of people on the same page. You've got to run a project with easy. people all over the place. And that distributed team, you know, on mobile devices or in different offices or working from home today or in another country changes the way that, that software tools need to work. Well, in we terms have of offices. Teams. Do you imagine we'll have offices? Did I think it? we'll still have offices. I think offices are, are very important. Mm-hmm. But I think the the notion of a team being 10 people that sit in a single room for right. the entire period of the project it's probably past, right? Yeah, um, we didn't. When we started All Things to You, we had no office. Everybody was somewhere else. But do you have an office today? Sort of. Yeah, so you need you need some some office. Not really. But people go in and out now much yeah. more. They work three days a week. They yeah. take care of the kids two days. So I think that notion of the traditional work breaking down or being distributed over time and space requires a, a very different set of tools to, to make teams be effective. So I want to finish up talking a little about one of the competitors you get, although you have much wider range of products, but Slack. What do you think of the Slack phenomena? It's sort of, it's probably good for you in that it keep, makes the area sexy and at the same time, ugh, Slack. Like, Sure, nice we have, look, we have, we, have, we have lots of competitors in all yeah, spaces. But that's the one. That's the one in HipChat. Yeah. Or not. That's the one in, in, in one of the spaces that we're in, certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, sure, I mean, if you look at, you know, both of us are probably much more heavily competing against Link or Skype or right. any of the big traditional enterprise messaging tools that have, yeah. you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of users than uh, than each other. If you think of a billion knowledge workers, we're both very, very early but in You that. guys have come in and made it exciting. I mean, many people feel that Skype has been mismanaged by Microsoft and they had the great opportunity there that they blew. What, what does it, why have you all, both you and and Slack and some others come in and been able to do that. One of the things we've done with HipChat that's very different to Skype or, or Link is focus on the team first. I mean, it's mm-hmm. part of our DNA as a business, but um, it does do one-on-one messaging, but mm-hmm. the focus is on team-based messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing that's the big difference really is the integration of tools, uh, other applications, APIs, software, integrations into the messaging experience. Um, so not just, you can't really you know, connect another application uh, if you have a software commit message or a marketing campaign result right. or something, connecting that into Skype doesn't make any sense. Whereas with something like HipChat, it's it's a natural part of a, a room to have people, but also uh, machines or software programs sending messages. Are you surprised that the big companies like Google and Microsoft, which has been trying to move into this area, I mean, Microsoft is in this area, but Google has moved in, haven't been as successful? Look, they've... They're, they're all successful trying in other very things. hard. They're yeah. all successful, um, you know, in terms of quantum. I'm sure they're all extremely successful. So mm-hmm. uh, we're not d- discounting anybody. Mm-hmm. The uh, enterprise communication is a very, very wide open space at the moment. Okay, I have two more questions. One is, did you ever think of selling? I'm sure you got many offers. I know Slack has and some others. Did you think about it? Um, we've never really seriously considered it, no. Um, we've always been very pragmatic asset managers, I think, and still believe the future is definitely ahead of us, it's not behind us. Market. So um, I can't see anyone paying a logical price that would make sense to us. <laughs> oh, they don't pay logical prices. Did you see LinkedIn just sold for $26 billion? Oh, that may be someone else's logic. So. <laughs> so last question I ask everyone, especially entrepreneurs who are here, talk about one thing you think you've done really well and something that you wish you had done differently or were you at a learning, I'll say a learning moment, but you don't have, you could say that was just a friggin' disaster and I'm just the way it went. 
Think um, entrepreneurs really want to understand. I think the biggest thing we've done well is to build a fantastic company culture. I mean, we have uh, world-renowned now company culture, uh, values, mission, but really believing deeply that technology is built by people and we want to build the best place for those people to work. Mm -hmm. um, and the best place doesn't mean we've got fancy ping-pong tables and some sort of five-star chef-catered food. <laughs> we do have ping-pong tables. We don't have five-star chef-catered food. Just a four-star. The, the best uh, workplace is somewhere where people feel you know, valued, where people feel like they're doing the best work of their lives, mm -hmm. where they feel like their work is making a difference in the world, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of their customers and then also in any sort of philanthropic sense, et cetera. So... You know, we have a fantastic culture. We've been the best place to work in Australia um, two years in a row. Mm -hmm. We were the number two place to work in America of less than a mm -hmm. thousand employees uh, across the whole country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it we sounds keep unusually healthy because it's usually fear and loathing that you know spurs a lot of companies. You on. know, we believe in in, in work life balance and, and that people have other things to do as well. And 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 we we take our people and our culture very very seriously and spend a lot of time on making sure it's uh, healthy. I suppose is the best word for it. And I think that as a big long-term advantage for us. In the short term, you know, it's hard to see how it's an advantage, but over the decade, I think it's been a huge advantage and for us. And one thing you've done that you learned from or a mistake you made? To flip that around, I suppose, not realizing quickly enough when people didn't uh, match the culture that we yeah. were trying to build um, has been a mistake that we've made uh, probably too many times. Too nice, uh, right? And constantly try to correct quicker, let's say. Yeah. Um, I think there's... There's a place for everybody, and sometimes you find, you know, uh, square pegs are trying to fit into round holes that, you know, we're not the, the culture for them, and that's fine. But uh, it's a lesson that as an entrepreneur, it's the hardest thing you have to do, and, and you got to learn it as early as possible. Right. Absolutely true. Thank you, Mike, for coming. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm thrilled Thank to you. be here in Sydney, and it seems like a pretty exciting scene that's happening here. It is. a very exciting place to be. So it was great talking to you, and thanks for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with LFS CEO Sally Krawcheck, investor Mark Andreessen, and the author of Chaos Monkey, Antonio Garcia Martinez, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Don't miss our interview with Elon Musk about how this is all just a game that we live in. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes the show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>